Good morning. Um, okay. Last week I began a three-part uh, three series entitled Shaped by Hope, mainly because we are soon to change our church name to Hope Church. And it's important that we are all well prepared to explain to whoever may ask us why we're called that and what the significance of the name is. Last week we looked at hope that shapes me and we spent some time looking um, at how God has fundamentally changed our perspective on life, death and eternity by sending Jesus to rescue us from the human predicament and place us in an altogether different position in relation to him and to everything and everybody else. This morning, I want us to look at how hope shapes us. Now, it almost goes without saying, um, but I'm going to say it anyway, because that's what preachers do, that whatever happens to us personally will have an impact or consequence on those who live around us. Uh, you remember the quote from John Donne, which often gets quoted, no man is an island of its, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. No man is an island. We're, what, what happens to us has an impact upon the world around us. And we see that to be a truth right down through the history of mankind. For example, during the recent um, commemorations of the start of World War I, we cannot have missed this fact in almost every aspect of that dreadful catastrophe. The affairs of one nation or the decision of one man or one group of men can have enormous implications in that particular case for hundreds of thousands of people. Um, for me, this is quite, this is, it comes, comes to home with that whole thing because my grandfather was killed in the First World War. In fact, the war began on August the 4th, as you will have been reminded just recently, and my grandfather was killed on the 25th of September that year. And, in fact, my mum, my who sometimes is here, is not here this morning, but it was her father. And, in fact, my grandmother was expecting my mum when, uh, when her, my grandfather was killed. So my mum never met her father. So, like for us then, those things that we, the decisions that were made to go to war, if you like, by one or a committee of people or whoever it was, still has implications and consequences for thousands, thousands of people. And that example from history could be repeated a million times over of where what happens in one person's life has an impact on the lives of others. 
So as we consider how hope changes me, we have to note the fact that that change will have consequences for those whose lives I touch or have uh, influence over in any way. What happens in my heart, good or evil, will affect others. My family, my work colleagues, my neighbours, anybody that I have any connection with. And the Bible makes it clear over and over again, that same point, as it charts the, the history of the human race and as it describes the sort of people that God wants us to be. It states clearly in numerous places that when God does something in our hearts personally and individually, whether we like it or not, or whether we acknowledge it or not, it makes an impact directly or indirectly on the lives of others. So my experience becomes in some way your experience. So, hope that shapes us. And we're talking specifically about the way hope changes us and shapes us. Last week I talked about the transformation that hope brings. Now, in the present and eternally, my perspective on life, the world, humanity, mortality and morality is fundamentally altered by hope. And so, the way I relate to other people is seen and handled in that altered way. We live in an extremely individualistic culture here in Britain. Perhaps particularly here in the southeast. It wasn't always thus. Ask anyone who's been around for over 50 years. There are one or two of us here. And many of them will tell you that there was a time when there was much more of a community spirit. People looked out for each other. Um, we hear people say, you could leave your front door unlocked safely. People would talk to strangers that they met in the street or on the bus or on the train. There was a lot more courtesy and consideration for other people. Of course, there were notable exceptions. But things were quite different to the closed-in individualism that pervades today. You know, there's reasons for that. We're all locked away in our homes with our own personal entertainment system that we, can, we don't really need to go out. We're all locked into our individual cars. We don't need to talk to people, you know, just blast the horn occasionally at them, but we don't really need to communicate. We don't have conversations on the train because we don't go on a train. Well, some do, of course. I like trains. The thing is that if we're not watchful and vigilant, that individualism can seep into the life of the community of God's people. The New Testament 
is extremely community-oriented. As is the Old Testament, it's largely about families, clans, tribes, nations. So we find that there is a lot of first-person plural and second-person plural in the language that Jesus and the New Testament writers use about those who follow Jesus. There's a lot more about us and you, plural. Unfortunately, the English language has only one word for you, which can mean singular or individual. It's the one failing, I think, of the English language. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the Brazilian. Um, Because it's not always easy to see whether that's referring to singular or plural. Whereas most other languages have a different word for singular and plural. Somebody ought to do something about that. Use. Yeah. What is it? Say it again. What is it in Portuguese? Você. Você? Yeah. See? Você. Você. Oh, you and you. Thank you. Thank you. I love, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> but that can, can seriously affect the way that we read scripture. For example, one of, our, one of the songs we sing quite often, we sang it last week, it has the words, Christ in me, my hope and my glory, based on Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But the you there is plural. It's not Christ in you as an individual. It's in Christ in you as a group of people is the hope of glory. So add something. Changes something, doesn't it, when you start thinking about that? Of course, it's true for us individually. Is Christ in me? Is the, my hope of glory? But actually, it's true for us plural because it's true singular. Okay. Let me move on. That was a little bit of Brazilian there, just in case you didn't understand it. So let's talk about hope and the church. So the individualism that we find all around us today can have an effect upon some Christians. Uh, You may hear people say, I think religion or faith is a personal thing. Uh, I don't go to church. I'm not part of a church. My faith, my religion is between me and God. I don't really need the church. In fact, there are a number of those people that are not here this morning. (laughs) You never get the right people here, do you, when you want to make a point? (laughs) My question to such a person, and I, I hope you're listening to this if you're listening to it after you weren't here, My question to such a person would be, do you ever listen to God or do you just talk to him? Because I would maintain that going by the majority of the New Testament, 
God loves the church. And if you have a conversation with him of any reasonable length, it won't be too long before he mentions his church and your involvement in it. Now, I need to be clear at this point. I completely understand and acknowledge that the church, the community of God's people, is far from perfect. I'm sorry. But it's true. We, as a church, are not perfect. And the church generally, wherever you go, it's not perfect. And because of that, sadly, many people have been hurt and offended by the church at times. Me included. Uh, And like me, many have perhaps said at one time or another, Lord, I love you, but your church? That's a different matter. And I guess I would have to say, that reaction may be appropriate for a time or a season. I know, like some of you know our story, but way back now, something like 15, no, 20 years ago, uh, Julie and I had a bad experience in a church in another part of the of the country and we came out of that situation badly hurt, badly wounded, just thinking, I don't want anything to do with this. And We were greatly helped by the church down in Alton and then eventually welcomed by you here. And uh, that's done us a massive amount of good. But there was a time when actually we felt it would, or at least I felt, I can't speak for Julie, but I felt, you know, I could do without this stuff. All that hassle. All that bad stuff, all that politics, I could do without that. So I guess it can be right that at times, for a season, you may feel that you've had to pull back from the church. But if you're going to grow in your relationship with God, you will need the encouragement and support that God's people can give you. I can think of many scriptures that make this abundantly clear, but I'd like to refer you to two this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 10. We've got bags of time, so I'm going to read a bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll know this, you'll be very familiar with this. I'm warning you, this is a familiarity warning that comes at the beginning. Because you know what happens when you're very familiar with a scripture, you miss the point. Do you know what I mean? So just listen very carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is made up of one part, sorry. Now the body, completely (laughs) messed that verse up, didn't I? Okay. I apologize to Paul. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And at that point, Paul expects the Corinthian church to fall about laughing. Because it's a ridiculous picture of this big ear just walking around, saying, I don't need anybody. But it wouldn't be able to say that because it didn't have a mouth. Anyway. (laughs) If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. From the start of this letter, and virtually the whole way through, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul is addressing an immature and dysfunctional church. And that can be seen on a variety of levels. So when we get to chapters 12, 13 and 14, we see that... um, They are right at the heart of what he has to say to this church. And, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to every church. Most of us will be familiar with chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. The so-called love chapter. And it often crops up in wedding services. And of course it's a good piece of descriptive definition of what love is when it's put into practice. The thing to notice, though, is that this chapter, 13, lies at the heart of teaching about the church. The community or family or congregation of God's people. And not surprisingly, chapter 13 follows chapter 12. And is followed by chapter 14. So you need to take those chapters together. Now we take the loved one out because it's lovely. But actually, it's, it, you know, you, you've heard me say this before, that the chapter divisions are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they are, they just make life difficult. They make life a lot easier sometimes, but sometimes they confuse the message. 
So when Paul talks about the church, he talks about the church being like a body and all the members being important, he then goes on to say, and it's all knit together by love and the way that you interact with each other in love. And he gets to the end of that chapter 13 and he says, now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And then he goes on to describe how the local church functions. It all ties in together. So chapter 12 talks about the church being like a body with many different but essential parts. It makes it clear that each member is needed for the whole community to function properly. And no part, no member, no individual can therefore say to the rest of the church, I don't need you. It's an offence to God that we should say, it sounds very spiritual, I don't need the church, I just, you know, I can manage, it's just me and Jesus, just me. It's an offence to God to talk like that, because we don't, we do need the church. We do need each other. So it's wrong for us to say, I don't need you, and the reverse is true, that the church can't look at you and say, well, we don't need you, because we do. That's the way the church functions. It's a body. The writer to the, le- to the Hebrews, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, says something um, similar, makes a similar point. So if you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, I just want to read to you a few verses from that. Hebrews 10, verse 19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So now, just drawing in to our particular subject this morning, this passage shows how our hope is something that not only impacts me personally, but it's a shared hope and has implications for us as a community as well as individuals. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So, hope that shapes us in practice. How does this work? How does the hope that shapes me 
shape us? What are the practical implications for us as a community of God's people? What are the implications of this radical change of perspective that has taken place in me? What are the practical implications for that for us as a whole community of his people? Well, first, a general point. Christ is the rock. We looked at that last week. He is my anchor. He is our anchor. Remember, the rock is Jesus, who has come and lived and died and been raised again and ascended into the presence of God, has gone right into the Holy of Holies, right into the presence of God for us. He's there for us. And we have our hope as an anchor that's been cast into the Holy of Holies and it's embedded in the rock, in the promises that God has made for us and to us through the Lord Jesus and all that he is and has done. So our hope is the anchor and our anchor has been cast into the rock which is in the presence of God with all his promises for us. Are you with me? And I went on to say that our faith is the chain that, that attaches us to our hope. And we occasionally need to give that tug on our faith to remind ourselves of where our anchor is fixed. Christ is the rock. And the confident, assured relationship that I have with him and the confidence I have that what he says is true, that he's faithful. That's, that's where my hope comes from. Now, when someone is confidently fixed and assured in this way, knows who they are, knows where they've come from, where they're going, what they're here for, they're in a far better position to reach out to others. So I'm, I'm anchored. I'm okay. The storms are coming. No, what's that, what's that song we sang earlier on? Spread fear and drought. What's it? Come on, Ben. Christ alone, my hope. Yeah, I'll do. When fears are stilled and striving cease. That's right. So we're, you know, we're anchored. We're anchored. You're anchored. Are you with me? We're anchored. So we're secure. And the waves are tossing around, beating about the boats, you know, and our little boat, and our communal boat occasionally gets tossed around. But our faith holds us securely to the anchor, which is fixed into the rock. And from that position of security, we can reach out to other people. So my hope affects the people that I can reach out to and touch. I can say to you, it's okay. It's okay. We'll be all right. Are you with me? Good. Jesus made it clear, for example, on a number of occasions, that because we are forgiven and know that we're forgiven, we can be and should be able to reach out with forgiveness to others. You know, <laughs> you've... Either, you've hurt me, but, hold on, 
I've been forgiven. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. I can forgive you. I can forgive you. Okay. Because of that, I can do this. All right. Or we can say, as we'll, we'll see the next time I preach, we can say to somebody, I've been forgiven. You can be forgiven. You see, my hope affects other people. But we're concerned today for people within the church, how it affects us. So my hope makes it possible for me to relate well to you. Because I've been forgiven, I can be forgiving. Because I've experienced the grace of God into my life, unearned, unmerited, undeserved, I can, I can put up with you. <laughs> um, because I'm, I've been accepted, in spite of everything that I've done and all that I am, I've been accepted and I'm secure, I can be welcoming to you. Come and be a part of this. You know, we are a community of saved sinners. Come, you're welcome. <laughs> because, you know, I just, can I just say this to you folks? I just want to say, well done. We had three guys here last week that came from the church in Alton. You, some of you spoke to them. Three young men. And they came here specifically because they said, you keep coming down to our church and telling us what we should be doing. We just came to see whether you do it. <laughs> and the, the first thing that one of them said to me after the service last Sunday morning was, top marks for welcome. We felt so welcomed as we came into the building. So thank you. Well done. And that's not the first time that's been said. We need to, we need to you know, take, take some encouragement from that. It's important because we're secure. I, I, just, I think that is a characteristic of a hopeful people, of a, of a group of people who are confident and assured of their relationship with God and the promises of God in Jesus, that we can be welcoming to others. We don't need to be suspicious of people. We don't need to stand at the door and say, so, are you one of us or one of them? Or, you know, come on, come on in, have a cup of tea. Oh, you're one of those. Oh, well, no. Anyway, I don't know what that means at all. Anyway. (laughs) My hope shapes me and consequently shapes the ethos, character, and atmosphere within the family of God's people. Therefore, the writer to the Hebrews here states that there are some simple practical measures and activities that are absolutely essential within the regular life of the community of God's people. And this really is a message for the people that are not here. So, just looking at... Um, verse 24 let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds first of all then consider don't just don't just whiz past that word there consider he's saying think about this how are you going to do it consider make a plan Let's have a strategy. Let's decide together how we're going to do this. How is this unswerving hope that we've got, how is that going to shape the way that we do stuff? Consider how you can spur one another on. How are you going to do it? 
I'm going to ask you that this morning. How are you going to do it? How are you going to obey the scripture? What are you going to do about it? What's your plan? What are the life choices that you're going to, lifestyle choices that you're going to make that will, en- will encourage your brothers and sisters? Consider how you're going to do it. Consider how to stir up one another or stir one another up. How are you going to do that? Well, I've mentioned welcoming. See, stir, how do you stir someone up? Well, you can do it this way. You can just sort of say, come on, what's up with you? Yeah, stir up the gift that was, what's your gift? What's your gift? Well, get on and do it. You can do that. But I would suggest that it wouldn't be very long before you would have nobody to stir up. Because they would have stirred off. So you stir one another up in lots of ways by welcoming, by being welcoming. Because if you welcome people into the church and make them feel as though they're important, they'll start to think, I could be a part of this. I want to be a part of this. I want to be like these people. That stirs people up to love and good works by being loving. By being honest with one another. You know, beginning to share our lives with each other. Not with everybody, you know. I'm not asking you to come up here every Sunday and say, well, I want to tell you all about me. You know, I don't want... I don't, but there will be individuals that we can talk to. Being honest. Being, I love it when preachers are honest, just occasionally. When preachers are honest, when they say things like, you know, I'm really struggling with this. You know, when, when, when preachers are honest, I sit there going, yes, yes, I'm glad you're not perfect. I'm so glad you're not perfect. I can't get on with, per- with preachers that stand up there and just give the impression that they've got it all sorted out and they know the answers to all the questions. What does that do to me? Well, you know, I think, well, I'll hand in my resignation now then because there's no way I can do that. So honesty is good, isn't it? Honesty is good. Worshipping together. Worshipping together. That's how you stir one another up. This is what we do. We worship together. So I came in here this morning and I was okay. I was in a good place, I think, with God, you know, but, and, you know, I'd been talking to him. You'd be pleased to know um, a little bit in preparation for all this. But, you know, just being here, just having the opportunity to sing with you and to pray with you and to, if, you stirred me up. You stirred me up. No, you stirred me up. It's like, it's just, it just stirs something in my heart. You know, singing to one another. Mike brought that encouragement last week about how we sing to each other the song of our own lives, the song, God's song in our own lives. We sing it to one another with hymns and spiritual songs. We we encourage one another, stir one another up. That stuff in Christ alone. What God has done. I just wanted to, yeah, well, I was saying it when all the music was playing, like we were, when we were all praying, but just saying, God, what a fantastic plan that was. What a fantastic scheme that you devised to bring us. Thank you for including me. 
singing to one another, praying together, sharing our needs, sometimes personal ones, sometimes needs of the wider world, but sharing that together. We stir one another up. When we met last Sunday evening to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq particularly, that's, you know, when I listen to some of you pray, that stirs me up to pray. I say, yes, this is serious. This is important. So consider how to stir one another up. Practical stuff. Lifestyle choices. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be part of that. It's not just about me. It's about us. To love and good works, it says. Love and good works within the church community. Correcting one another in love. Enduring together. Persevering together through difficult situations. Showing love and doing good stuff for each other. Helping one another. Being generous. Being kind. And outside the church, which we'll come to in the next, the next time I speak to you in a couple of weeks' time. Meeting together. Most of the above won't happen by remote control. We have to meet together. We have to. You, um, spiritual gifts are mainly for the benefit of others. And they have to be exercised in community. You can't, you know, I've often used this as an example, but what if your gift is interpretation of tongues? What are you going to do if nobody ever speaks in tongues? They're just sitting there like a, like a pointless ear. You know, you know, you're just, I've got these gifts. Would somebody please speak in tongues so I can interpret? You know, but, but most, of the, most of the spiritual gifts are, they're for community. They work in community. They don't work in an individual sense. Well, obviously, in those days, when this letter to the Hebrews was written, as in our day, there were those who thought the church was an irrelevance, or just there as an occasional convenience. But here the Word of God makes it abundantly clear, as it did in 1 Corinthians verses chapters 12 to 14, that being together is essential to being a church that comes somewhere near to being what God intends it to be. We sang it earlier on. It's not about me. As if you should do things my way. For my way would be individual. My way would be me on my own. Me and Jesus, that's all. Don't want the other stuff. Don't want the bother of being with those other people and their questions and their prayer needs. And yeah, It's just about me and Jesus. But it's not about me. It's about him and his way. And his way is the community of God's people. Encouraging one another. Meeting together, encouraging one another. We can do that in all sorts of ways. Life groups, personal accountability with one another, recognition of gifts and ministry, going up to someone saying, you know, that was really good. When you prayed this morning, I'm so glad you prayed that. That was really helpful. Thank you for playing the keyboard this morning, Tom. 
thank you for, <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for what you did. Thank you, Norman, that you put the right words up for the song. Thank you. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for those who made us welcome as we came in the door. Thank you. Thank you for the people that are going to make coffee and tea in just a moment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Encouraging one another. Recognition of gifts and ministries. Words of encouragement. Teaching one another. Training one another. Equipping one another. It's all part of encouraging one another. And then he says at the end, as the day draws near. And here's that perspective of hope again. That perspective element again. We do what we do. Not just because we're here and now. But with an eye to the future and eternity. So you might say, why should I bother meeting together? Because I'd rather just stay at home and read a good book. I'll tell you why. Because one day, Jesus is going to say to you, what was the point of that book when you could have been with my people, being built up and encouraged and encouraging others and being part of what? What was that about? My church that I love. Why weren't you part of that? As the day draws near, there's, there's that perspective element again. The Christians in Iraq at present, in North Korea, in Syria, in northern Nigeria, will be benefiting today, dare I say, from what they had before the trouble started. In terms of fellowship, Mutual support, prayer, etc. And as things get worse, and should persecution come to us, and why shouldn't it? How precious will be the lessons that we learned and the strength we gained from being part of a hope filled, vibrant, loving, gracious family of God's people. So conclusion. Let hope shape you and me individually. Let's be shaped by this hope that our anchor is fixed firmly in Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done. And let that hope, um, that unswerving hope, cause us to consider how we can stir one another up as a community of people that are shaped by that confidence, that hope. We all need to do some work on making that hope and confidence sure for ourselves day by day. And let's let hope shape us as a part of the family of God. Let that confidence and assurance that we have individually shape what we are as a community of God's people together. And let's look for ways to make that happen more and more as the months and the years go on. Let's pray together. Will you stand with me? I think it would be good for us just to bring this to a close and before we break bread together.